0: We're in Psalm 68. Why don't you open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. Psalm 68. We are following Psalms that either were quoted by Jesus or that are Messianic Psalms. Psalm 68, the topic is a song to celebrate the history of the Ark of the Covenant upon its arrival in Jerusalem. We're calling this Ark Tales. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we approach this text, there's uh, quite a bit that we don't recognize at first. Nothing too deep or not understandable. It's just that we're not first century temple Jews. Uh, And so I, I pray, Lord, that we would get up to speed on that and at the same time not miss any of the inspiration of this psalm of ultimate victory for the people of God. If anything, Lord, we want to be focused on that today. Uh, Many of us struggling with various things, diseases and depression and whatnot. Our society seems to be falling apart in so many different ways. Uh, We need to know, Lord, that there's an ultimate plan and victory and that it involves our relationship with you and forever, uh, Lord, being uh, in a place of no tears, no sorrow and no sin. And so guide us and direct us through each verse, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Strongholds of men. Strongholds of elves, strongholds of dwarves, strongholds of evil. The Lord of the Rings trilogy is full with them. Helms Deep, Rivendell, Moria, Mordor. Especially Mordor, also called the Black Land and the Land of Shadow. It was the realm of the Dark Lord Sauron. When Boromir heard that the plan was to take the One Ring to Mordor to destroy it in the fires in which it was forged, he uttered these terrifying words. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is an evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. It's a barren wasteland riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. There is a stronghold of evil in Psalm 68. It's named twice in verse 15 and then once in verse 22. You see it, it's Bashan. Now, we don't immediately see it because we're not Hebrew and because we aren't up on supernatural Jewish geography. The Old Testament says that Bashan was controlled by two kings, Sihon and Og. Both were associated with the ancient giant clans, the Rephaim and the Anakim. Og, for example, slept in a bed that was made of iron, 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. That's bigger than some of your bedrooms. He was a big dude, as we would say today. One scholar writes this, according to Jewish tradition, this region of Bashan was the location where the divine sons of God had descended from heaven, ultimately corrupting humankind via their offspring with human women, as reported in Genesis 6. These offspring were known as Nephilim, precursors of the Anakim and the Rephaim. In Jewish theology, the spirits of these giants were demons. Any mention of Bashan would remind a Jew of Nephilim and of a demonic stronghold. What if I told you there was another stronghold in Psalm 68? Again, it isn't immediately obvious as a stronghold, but as we'll see, it's the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of the Lord dwelt among his people in the tabernacle and then later the temple. With all that in mind, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God's presence in Israel prevailed and will prevail against the enemy. And number two, God's presence in you prevails and will prevail against the enemy. Let's take a look at actually the majority of the psalm and the place of Israel and the Ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, that amazing box was in the Holy of Holies where God chose to dwell among Israel. And that is definitely what this psalm is about. Look at the fact in verse 7. Uh, It says, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, that's a reference to the ark going before the Israelites as they were going through the wilderness and then on into the promised land. Many times the ark would accompany them into battle. You remember the ark going around Jericho several times. And so the ark was uh, something that went with them. Verses 24 and 25 make it clear that the song is about the ark. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers went before the players on instruments, followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. And so that is a summary of the bringing of the ark into Jerusalem and the celebration of it. William MacDonald comments. This is Israel's national processional in which the journey of the Ark of the Covenant from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion is seen as symbolizing the march of God to ultimate victory through history. To the Jewish mind, the Ark rightly represented the presence of God. When the Ark moved, God moved. It is quite generally believed that this song was composed to celebrate one particular incident in the history of the Ark the return to Jerusalem after its inglorious capture by the Philistines and after its stay in the house of Obed Edom. This song tells of the ark's march through the wilderness into the promised land to Jerusalem, and then we'll see far beyond even that to God's ultimate triumph over evil. It begins with a six verse prelude. Verse one to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him. We don't recognize it, but this first verse gives us a clue that he's going to be talking about the movements of the ark. These are almost the exact words Moses used when the ark first started off from Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. And so, again, first century, second temple period Jew, very familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, more so than us, probably had it memorized would recognize the opening line of this song as a reference to that historical period of time, and it would draw them in immediately to uh, the groundwork of this psalm. As the smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. Here, the power of God's ark is compared to wind and fire, while the enemies of God were like smoke and wax. And indeed, when Israel was walking with God, Uh, nothing and no one could overcome them. Uh, One thing I like about this psalm uh, as well, this song, it avoids all the negative uh, aspects of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Uh, They were a bunch of knuckleheads in reality, as we saw in the book of Exodus uh, and elsewhere. Uh, But God is just highlighting the actual uh, march and the events, getting the ark into Jerusalem. God providing for history, despite man's failure, Uh, and moving his uh, plan of redemption forward. And so verse three, let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. The righteous is just a name for believers. You could put the word believers there, but uh, the idea here is that you believe God and he declares you righteous. You're a believer because God has declared you righteous. He grants you a right standing with him, and that's because of what Jesus did on the cross. Second Corinthians we read that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so on the cross, Jesus, who was only righteous, who had no sin, uh, exchanges that for our sin. He takes our sin upon him, gives us his righteousness. God the Father declares us righteous in a right standing with him in a way that cannot be revoked. A believer can therefore always be glad and rejoice and rejoice exceedingly, knowing they stand in righteousness and that heaven awaits after a relatively short time of trouble in this life. And so you may not think it's comforting, but it's meant to be. Anything you're going through at any time in your life You can stand and say, I know this is difficult or it's even seemingly overwhelming, but I am declared righteous and I will go to heaven. That isn't wishful thinking to focus on the ultimate triumph of God over his people or on being in heaven. The Bible, I think, is one book you want to read the ending first. Uh, Don't recommend that for most books or movies. You know, we have in our society now, everybody's always saying spoiler alert. Uh, It's one of those phrases that has crept in. And for sure, uh, it's hard for us because I I do watch a lot of movies, uh, all approved by the Pope, uh, but no, I'm just kidding. But uh, I like movies and we like to quote movies and talk from movies and, and, you know, I think if you haven't seen a movie in the first four or five years, then I don't care about spoilers anymore. Uh, I'm gonna tell you that, uh, you know, people died in it and what happened and, you know, I'm just sorry. You don't want to be around uh, that, you know, I don't know if that four or five years is the timeline or uh, I I hate to ruin it for you. We try and say, Hey, have you seen, you know, this and that? No, I never saw. I can't talk to you then. Yeah, you'll ruin it. Uh, But anyway, uh, I don't know where I'm at or what I'm talking about now, but it'll come back to me in just a minute. Uh, Oh yeah. The end before the beginning. (laughs) So How is this a practical help to you? Usually when somebody becomes a new believer or a seeking unbeliever, we say, hey, read the gospel of John. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that. Gospel of John is great. It says at the end, it was written that we might believe. And so it has that power. But I really think we ought to recommend that new believers read the book of the revelation. Tell them, read Revelation 19 through 22. This is how it's all going to end. Then go back and read the whole book and then read the gospel of John. And what a great foundation. There's just something about knowing how it's going to end that is more important for biblical Christianity than it is for a mystery novel. You don't want to keep, you know, I remember when I was a, uh, still a non-believer, uh, we recently married and Pam and I thought, well, we should read the Bible. I don't know why we thought we should read the Bible, but we got a Bible out and I started reading it and I couldn't get past Genesis uh, 4. Uh, there was all these creeping things, creeping on the earth. And, and I mean, we started laughing. We couldn't understand. Of course, our eyes were darkened. Our hearts were hardened, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't read the word of God, but it might've been nice to start with something more understandable. You know, there are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. They're hard to understand for Christians and they're even harder for non-believers. And you say, well, then why revelation? Because revelation is not that hard to understand, especially the last three chapters. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus comes, he wins He gets rid of all the wicked people. We go to heaven with him and it's glorious. What more could you want? And so keep that in mind. Changing pages now. Here we go. Verse four, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. God's Old Testament presence was a cloud by day during the Exodus. And so this is a reminder Yah, as a name of God, first appears in the Song of Moses. Now, again, we could waste a lot of time trying to discover why the the writer here uses Yah instead of Yahweh or some other name of God. And we could go off on a tangent. I'm not saying that wouldn't be valuable at some point in a seminary. But all David intends really is that they would think about where in the Bible this word was used previously and the only other place is in the Song of Moses. And so again, he is building up to letting them know that this is a song of the ark and its uh, movements. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. You could say that the Exodus made Israel a nation. And the test of a nation is how it treats its most vulnerable population. Here he talks about showing compassion to the fatherless and to widows and to the solitary. And he talks about bringing uh, captives out of their captivity. And so uh, you want to know what kind of a nation you live in, whether it's the United States, as we do, or other nations, All you have to do is think, how do we actually really treat the most vulnerable individuals in our society? And I don't have to tell you that we're murdering them before they're born. And so, uh, man, are we in trouble? Uh, We need to, you know, Christians, I mean, we've repented. And I believe that there's probably women here who've had abortions before they were believers, maybe some after. And God has forgiven you and, and we, you know, it's, it's not the unforgivable sin or anything like that. You're not to be singled out or called out. But in a general sense, uh, the most vulnerable people in our society are, are, are infants, babies in the womb, and we're killing them. And so um, not a very Christian nation, I would say. His promise to Israel was prosperity, both economic and emotional. Economically and emotionally, folks aren't doing well right now. Hertz Rent-A-Car announced its bankruptcy. 17,000 people are out of work. I think you're going to see that more and more, sadly. Suicide and domestic violence are increasing alarmingly. Australia says suicide is up by 50%. Their suicide deaths are outpacing their COVID deaths. Uh, and so it's, it's a weird trade-off. According to a recent study, and I quote, one-third of Americans, and that, that's a big number, One third of Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety and depression, the most definitive and alarming sign yet of the psychological toll exacted by the coronavirus pandemic. This behavior that we've been forced into, whether good or bad, is going to have a bad effect on us for a long time to come psychologically, unless we have a biblical worldview and are able to understand the Lord and his love for us. How are we doing? It's hard to say, but I did see this article that I think kind of puts it in a nutshell. Uh, The title was nearly half of churchgoers say they haven't watched any services in the past four weeks. And so, you know, when when the government said, oh, close, it'll be fine. You can be online. And a lot of the pastors said, "Okay, we have to spin this as a positive thing. This is a great thing. We're ready for it. The church isn't a building and, you know, we're all meeting at home and it's just great. Well, now nobody's meeting at home. Half of the people who are meeting at home are saying they're not doing that anymore. That's why we've said from the beginning, it's not a good thing. It's great to be online for people who can't come to church, but it's not great to not come to church and be online because it eventually fails. It's not like getting together with believers. There's no accountability. There's no fellowship. There's there's nothing uh, that would happen. So, yeah, I know the church isn't a building, but God lead you to buy a place where you can meet because we should meet. The, the church is when Christians get together. I'd like to get together outside all the time, but that doesn't work in the Central Valley, does it? One of my friends up in Washington, Steve Wintery at, at Calvary Tri-Cities up there, they've got a huge, beautiful amphitheater. Fountains and lush vegetation. Their kids are meeting in the sanctuary while their congregation meets in the amphitheater. We're not going to meet outside in, in, in a couple of weeks, or at least I'm not. I'll be in here. Now, we did put in some misters. It's going to be cooler out there, but it's mostly just to fool you into thinking it's, it's okay. But you know what I mean? Let me find myself again. Verse 7, oh, God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Salah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. God of Israel. God's creation responded to the march of the ark. God's dealings with Israel are not some localized belief system. They are cosmic, affecting all the universe and all mankind. They are momentous and magnificent. They are awesome and amazing. If I were to ask somebody or they were to ask me, what is the main subject of the Bible, we would want to say Jesus Christ, and I think that would be accurate. But the nation of Israel is a huge subject in the Bible. It encompasses all the Old Testament, for example, and it continues on into the new. Uh, And so what happens in Israel is huge. Verses 9 through 14, the Ark entered the promised land. Oh, God, you sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O oh God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. When Israel crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, the ark was carried before them leading the way. This song describes changes in the weather patterns that brought abundant rain, promising great crops in this land flowing with milk and honey. When it says the Lord gave the word, it means he was their military captain as the armies of Israel captured city after city from the enemy. There's an episode where Joshua is contemplating their first attack. And the captain of the Lord's host comes to him, the Lord himself in a theophany, and tells him that he is their leader. And that's what this commemorates. The Jewish women stayed back. So they were secure, tending the sheepfolds. The victorious men brought home the spoils. They tried on beautiful clothes and jewelry resembling the wings of a dove covered with silver. Or when the light hit it at a different angle, they gleamed like feathers with yellow gold. By the way, you guys that are here with your wife or a girlfriend... You can't use this, but if, if your wife doesn't know about this, next time she asks you how she looks, you can say, honey, you look like the wings of a dove covered with silver. When the light hits you a different angle, you look like they're feathers with yellow gold. Huh? It beats, okay. <laughs> right? Hey, I tell you what, you start talking to your wife like this and she won't ask you anymore. But anyway... I'd like to remind us that giants like Sihon and Og were deeply entrenched in the promised land. The main reason that Israel initially refused to enter the promised land was what? Giants. Not that they were afraid of anything else, but giants. Numbers chapter 13. The 10 spies said, we are not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than we are. The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw are men of great stature. There we saw giants, the descendants of Anak. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. And so what we are learning, and I've mentioned this before, the presence of giants, Nephilim, the, the you know, uh, predecessors, Precursors were the Anakim. I I forget what I was saying. (laughs) The presence of the Nephilim in the promised land were a satanic strategy to thwart the coming of the ark into the promised land. And uh, it worked for that first generation. They were only a few days journey from where they were into the promised land. But when they sent the spies in the 10, Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. They said, ah, we can take them. But uh, the other 10 said, No, you don't understand. There are giants. There are men so big there that I look like a grasshopper compared to them. Men like Og, who were 11, 12 feet tall. And, and you know, uh, that is what was going on. And so we don't understand some of this stuff because we're not first century Second Temple Jews. And we gloss over it as if it's not important, but it is the point. If you think I'm making too much of giants, It might be because we mostly make too little of them. There are more than 30 verses about the Nephilim or the Rephaim or the Anakim. And pun intended, they are huge in Jewish history. Bible commentators tend to downplay their role as if it's not that important. But that's because we're not in the context of the psalm like we should be. Now, the next several verses serve as an interlude as the psalm discusses victory over Bashan. Verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Now, wait a minute. If it is a mountain of God, how can Bashan be an evil stronghold? Well, this word translated God is the plural form of Elohim. It it means that Bashan is a mountain of Elohims. You can verify that by consulting Strong's Concordance. You don't have to be a language scholar. It says right there in Strong's that it's the plural form of this word. The word Elohim is not a name for God. It describes a class of beings, all supernatural beings, God, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, the obedient angels, Satan, fallen angels, all are Elohims. And so all supernatural beings are Elohims, but no other supernatural being is God. So that's important. And so God is an Elohim. He's a supernatural being but he is unique among those beings as the almighty triune God. And so that's a very important distinction because uh, we'll see later in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible, oftentimes this word Elohim is translated only as God or Elohim's is translated a different way altogether. And uh, we don't get the true sense of what is being said. Bashan is said to be a mountain of many peaks. One of those peaks is Mount Hermon. One researcher wrote, in the apocryphal book of Enoch, Mount Hermon is the place where the Grigori, the watcher class of angels, descended to earth. They swore upon the mountain that they would take wives among the daughters of men and then return, an act corresponding to the description of the Nephilim of Genesis 6, which speaks of sexual relations between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Ridding the earth of these Nephilim was one of God's purposes for flooding the world in the days of Noah. A global flood, disastrous. One of its main purposes was to kill these giants who had began to corrupt the human race. I know what you're thinking. Next, we'll see Gene on Ancient Aliens on television giving interviews, being some crazy. But listen, this is, all, this is all grounded in the Bible. We did a series. It's on our podcast page uh, on the days of Noah, where we talk a lot about some of this stuff. And I, th- I think you'd enjoy it. Uh, it's easy listening and um, just very, very interesting. Verse 16, why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Clearly, there is a conflict going on between God and the mountain area of Bashan. That conflict, we know, was resolved by the cross of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over all the agents of evil once for all. Verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000. Well, really, they're even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. This is like a poetic rendering of the march of the ark into Jerusalem. Bashan looked on and could do nothing to stop the glory of the Lord from coming into the tabernacle and later the temple. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Despite the best efforts of Bashan and the rebellion of the Jews themselves, As I said, God, by his providence, was accomplishing his plan to redeem mankind and creation. And so God, you might say, interferes with or oversees history so that he can keep certain things on track. And so when when Israel was walking with him straight to the promised land, everything would have been great. But enemies came along and they got Israel off course, uh, not, not because of their strength, but because of Israel's weakness and their rebellion Nevertheless, God got them to the promised land and got them to Jerusalem and preserved them until this day. Uh, He is the God of providence. The ark's arrival in the city of God was a huge moment in the furtherance of the plan to redeem humanity and all creation. You might recognize that the apostle Paul applies this verse to Jesus in his letter to the church at Ephesus, and that's what makes this a messianic psalm. The Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, He seated there in glory and power. It was another great victory brought to pass by the providence of Almighty God. Verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Benefits is not in the original. It reads that the Lord daily burdens us. If you were here last week, we saw this idea of being burdened in Psalm 55. It means that God sustains us in what he gives us to carry. Salvation is only the beginning of his work in us. He saves us. And then we are on a path towards ultimate salvation. When we're glorified, in the meantime, we are being sanctified as he gives us a life to live uh, burdens, which are not bad necessarily. We think of burden in a bad way, but a burden in sense of our lot in life. And God says, no matter what it is, no matter whether it seems a burden or a blessing, he will sustain us in it. Our God is the God of salvation and to God, the Lord belong escapes from death. There is no other way to be saved, but to believe the God of the Bible in him alone. Can a person escape from the penalty of sin, which is death. And that means eternal conscious suffering in the lake of fire, but God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot may crush them in blood. And the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. This is a song. It's poetry. This is a picturesque description of God's final dealings with supernatural evil doers. God will bring them back from Bashan and deal with them. Uh, They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. And so now David comes back to the event at hand, the arrival of the ark in Jerusalem for the first time. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after, Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There's little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. I look at this and in modern terms, it looks like you're flipping through pictures of the event. Uh, The event took place and then you say, hey, let me see your pictures. Oh, look, there's little Benjamin. How oh, cute! Now, in context, that would be the tribe of Benjamin, which was a smaller tribe in Israel—not little Ben or something like that. Uh, but it doesn't—it's like, it, 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 in other words, he's not describing the entire event. This isn't a, a you know a step by step program of what happened. It's just little snapshots to talk about the glory of that day. Now, next, the song jumps future, even beyond our own time. Verse twenty nine. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. This is a future temple, what we call the millennial temple. It's going to exist in Jerusalem after the second coming of Jesus to the earth to establish the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. Verse 30, rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herd of bulls with calves of the peoples, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver, scatter the peoples who delight in war. This, I believe, is a look at the second coming. Beasts and bulls, these refer to evil Elohims. For example, when we looked at Psalm 22, which is a prophecy of Jesus on the cross, at one point, the psalmist said what Jesus was feeling, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, certainly there weren't bulls at the cross. They didn't say, hey, bring all those bulls here. We'll really scare Jesus. He's got some kind of a childhood fear of bulls. And so, but the author makes it clear, there are the bulls of Bashan. They are evil beings who attended the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and gave him trouble. Calves of the people can be translated flocks of people. This would refer to those taken captive by the devil to do his will, to non-believers. Not possessed people, just non-believers who are available to the devil and his evil minions to do his will. Until everyone submits himself with pieces of silver would remind a Jew that under the law, a firstborn son is symbolically redeemed with silver coins. In the context here, it is promising the millennium as a time of salvation. It would be a time when many would be saved. Verse 31, envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, Salah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel and his strength is in the clouds. Peace will prevail. Nations will come to Jesus in Jerusalem to kneel before him with gifts. His glory will fill the earth as clouds fill the sky. The Ark was lost to history before the Babylonian captivity. It's an interesting study. I, not that it means anything, but I personally don't think it will ever be found. It doesn't need to be found. God's presence wasn't in the Ark during that period of time. It had already departed the temple. Uh, and so we don't really care about that Ark because Jesus is coming. And we have God's presence in person, not in the form of fire and cloud, but in person. And that brings us to the last verse, God's presence in you prevails and will prevail against the enemy. We're big on context when reading and teaching God's word. We never want to read into a text something that is not there. At the same time, we benefit from having the full revelation of God. Gives us a freedom to see things in the text that the original human author did not yet understand and it would be silly to ignore it. Not a good illustration, but I think it helps You've seen the, maybe been in court or you've seen these uh, court dramas on TV where an attorney goes off on a tirade and then the judge comes down with his gavel and says, The jury will disregard everything they just heard. Well, no, they won't. Of course they won't. They'll act like that. How can you disregard it? You know, I mean, you might think, Well, we're going to disregard that, but uh, we're really not because we know about it now. And so we can't, for the sake of context, we can't say, Well, I think this might have something to do with us, but gosh, we better not say that because we're not to the end of the Bible yet. And so, you know, we know some things. Uh, We know a lot more uh, about things than these uh, writers of the Bible did, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And so I can't help but see us in this final verse. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Without taking anything away from the celebration at hand, David said, God is more awesome than his presence dwelling in the ark. So he writes this song, this magnificent song, about the movement of the ark through history, looking far ahead in future history, and at the fact that there will be a temple uh, with him in it, not not an ark probably, but anyway. Uh, and, and then he says, but the ark is really nothing. And he, he's not being weird, he's not... You know taking the edge off the celebration as some people do uh you know i i don't know why this ties in but i'm going to say it anyway but i was at a funeral one time i was officiating a funeral one time and everybody you know at a funeral everybody gets up and says nice things and uh and that's great that's you know and, and so one of the family members up and say well everybody said nice things some of you don't know the dark side and then he went on for a while talking about some terrible things and i thought okay Remember this for your funeral, my friend. (laughs) But uh, so David wasn't being a downer. He wasn't like, like a lot of pastors today have refreshed their memory about the phrase, the church is not the building, it's the people. And, you know, we all understand. I don't know, Gene was saying a couple of Wednesdays ago at the study, I don't know any Christians that don't believe that. Is that a revelation to you? Did you just, oh my gosh, I thought the church was the church. I thought the building was the church. I don't know who I am. And so nobody really thinks that. It's just something stupid people say. When they want to kind of make people feel a little bit on edge, they say, oh, the church, you know, it's like, hey, we don't need a building to be the church. Okay. Well, then how about you get rid of your building since that's true? Uh, You know, because all these same people who said that, as soon as this COVID stuff passes, if it ever does, they're going to want everybody to do what? What? not stay home but to come back to the building and be the church and so so it's it just all this stuff drives me crazy there's a hint that god wanted to dwell not just with his people but in them god was greater than his presence in the ark he was with them but he wanted to be in them it says here he gives us strength and power jesus told the church you shall receive what power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that's Acts 1.8. And he then gave the church the gift of the Holy Spirit, a birthday gift on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit indwelling us and empowering us. By the way, today happens to be the day of Pentecost on the Jewish calendar. And so nice how that tied in. I came across a quote this week. It's only four words, but I like it. We are sacred space. Individually and collectively, believers are the temple. We are the sacred space where the Holy Spirit dwells. No enemy, natural or supernatural, can prevail against us either now or in the future. Let me share something that I think will encourage you about that statement. Because when I say that, you think, well, so many things do come against us and and so many people are suffering and there's so much evil and all of that. But let me encourage you. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus took his disciples to, it says, the region of Caesarea Philippi. It was there he uttered a favorite phrase of believers, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We've all heard that verse or copied it down or said it to somebody. We typically think of Satan and his forces attacking us knowing that they can't prevail. And that's true. They do attack us. Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and we are under spiritual attack, fiery darts of the wicked and all of that. But that's not what these verses, are, this verse is about. Because gates are not offensive weapons. The devil doesn't come at you with a gate. He doesn't. He's not looking for a wrought iron gate with those prickly things and just, I've got you now. You know, that, that, that's not it at all. He's behind the gate. It's a defensive weapon. And so Jesus is describing an assault on the powers of evil. He was saying he was going to triumph over evil. And because of it, we too would prevail. He was declaring on that spot that his mission would succeed and he would break the hold of evil forever. And here's a kicker. Caesarea Philippi, where he took his disciples, was located at the base of Mount Hermon in this region of Bashan. And his disciples would have known that they were in the shadow of evil. It'd be like being outside the gates of Mordor and making a declaration that, hey, we have already, we're going to win and we've already won. What an amazing thing when we know geography and history as we should. At the cross, Jesus, and I quote, disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In his death on the cross at what might be called the weakest moment of his human life, he defeated all the powers of darkness once and for all. And that defeat will turn into ultimate victory in his second coming. The ultimate end of evil you can read about in the Revelation, as I said. Meantime, we prevail in the church age the way Jesus prevailed when he was on the earth. And how was that? In humility, in lowness. In uh, seeking what's best for others, in forgiveness, in all of the things that that Jesus modeled for us, his offensive against the gates of hell that tore down those gates and destroyed the powers of evil was him being silent before Pilate, going to the cross as a lamb led to the slaughter, and letting the his life uh, be uh, bled out for others, and and that's how we prevail. I'd rather tell you we prevail by rebuking the devil and having perfect health and amazing wealth, but that's not the age in which we live. We live in an age of grace where we pray and the Lord says, my grace will sustain you. My power is made perfect. It is revealed in your weakness as the, the best example I can think of is many times in uh, Christian history, whereas they were marching martyrs to be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ the soldiers would lay down their weapons and join them as martyrs for Jesus Christ because there was something so powerful about what was happening in the lives of these people. They defied governors and governments and kings. They stood alone against all the darkness of the universe and declared that Jesus Christ was Lord. Some of them you couldn't even kill right away. They tried to burn them. They boiled them in oil and they just wouldn't die. But the Lord was glorified and will be. He's coming. It's imminent. In the meantime, we have a job to do, and that is to reveal him to others.